The beauty industry is one of the most exciting, complex and fast-moving sectors in the world today. It faces multiple challenges from a proliferation of independent brands which are shaking up industry conventions, but there are also vast opportunities for the brands able to move swiftly and fully embrace change. And that's what we'll be discussing on this episode, show 88 of the C-Suite podcast that we're producing in partnership with Future Brand. My name is Russell Goldsmith and we're back at Future Brand's London office to discuss the release of their latest report, The Future of Beauty. Now we've brought together a global panel of experts to discuss the key trends shaking up the industry and so firstly I'm thrilled to be able to welcome Jasmina Aganovic, founder and president of Mother Dirt, who are based in the US. Launched in 2015, the brand is a leader in developing biome-friendly products and is on a mission to dispel the notion that bacteria is bad and that sterile is always good. We also have Lisa Gallo, Vice President, Product Innovation, Research and Development at Avon, joining us online from New York. Avon, of course, is a household name and has been a global beauty leader for 130 years, standing for innovation, honesty, inclusion and beauty. Uh, now, also with me here in London via South Africa, we have professional makeup artist Candice Joni, who describes herself as a holistic, sustainable practitioner. Um, Candice is also a judge at the Sustainable Lifestyle Awards, which we'll hear a little bit more about later. Later on in the show. And finally, alongside Candice and Jasmina, we have brand expert MT Cassidy, Future Brand London's Executive Creative Director. So thanks to all of you for joining us today. Uh, MT, let's come to you first, as it will be good to get an overview on the new Future of Beauty report and uh, your insights on where the sector is heading before we delve into some of the key trends that you've highlighted in it. But perhaps you could start by just explaining why Future Brand is focusing on the beauty industry. So as I'm sure we'll hear and talk about a lot today, um, the beauty industry is one of the most exciting and transformative sectors. It's changing so rapidly as a result of internal and external forces. So I think it's, the, it's, it's a lovely thing to think that actually the industry that was only skin deep now has to prove it has a soul. So we've looked at these key trends, which are really sort of fascinating, and we'll discuss those later. But we want to really bring together leading voices from companies, large and small, uh, to find out the views of what the future of beauty might look like. Um, at Future Brand, we're really interested from a brand perspective and really believe that the brand managers really need to be thinking about how to stay relevant, how to be innovative, um, how to stand out in an ever-crowded marketplace, whether that's URL or IRL. Okay, and before we dig deeper into the report. Jasmina, um, I think it's fair to say that Mother Dirt has had phenomenal success since you launched. Um, so it's one of those innovative you. young brands <laughs> <laughs> that the, uh, the report highlights. You have a unique product offering. Can you quickly share your story of why you launched the company and how you got to where you are now? Uh, abs- absolutely happy to. Mother Dirt, uh, when you hear the name, you might think that's a really strange name. Why would you put dirt in the name of a skincare line? Uh, And that actually is the very point that we are trying to make. We're really challenging existing conventions around cleanliness. Uh, We've come to believe that clean means killing 99.9% of bacteria. And the whole point of that is that it will make us healthier and it will make our skin look better. Uh, And in essence, the emerging research that's coming out in part that is coming from uh, our group is that being too clean is not not necessarily a good thing. Uh, so going back to uh, our, our hero product, uh, we have an actual live culture of bacteria that comes from the dirt uh, that once used to exist on human skin, but has been cleaned away in the last hundred years or so. And it plays a very important role in balancing the skin. And now to tie it to uh, a little bit of the theme here at Future Brand, we decided to build a brand less intentionally like most brands are, but in a very unique way because we wanted to build a brand as a vehicle for discussion with consumers. We didn't want to keep the work that we were doing purely academic. We wanted to create a physical product that people could interact directly with because the industry, as as MT had mentioned, is massive and also has a massive opportunity for impact. And so we believed that by building a brand and creating physical products that consumers interact with, that we could shift the narrative uh, around bacteria and the cultural bias that exists with it in a more powerful and perhaps more rapid way. 
I suppose we should explain why you're over in London as well, because <laughs> we're very fortunate to obviously, uh, you know, have you join us actually in the room here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm very happy to be here. Uh, if you can't tell by my uh, non-existent British accent, uh, I am not based out of uh, London. Uh, Mother Dirt comes from Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, so we're from the U.S. Uh, a lot of our team is technical based, uh, so my degree is uh, from MIT in chemical and biological engineering, and as was much of the founding team. Uh, but one of the most exciting things that we have going on and the reason I've been coming to London so much is that we launched in Harvey Nichols in August of this year. And at the end of October, uh, we're going to be closing out a pop-up that's in the Knightsbridge location. So Fantastic. I'm here to uh, be here for that. Very nice. Well, uh, talking of the US, as we mentioned, we have Lisa um, online from uh, New York. Lisa, in innovation is very much at the heart of what you and your company stand for. So as Vice uh, President, Product Innovation uh, Research and Development, Development. Your task with innovation at, at Avon, I think fair to say one of the long-standing major players in the beauty industry. What's your view of the current sector landscape and how is Avon responding to the challenges and opportunities which have occurred with sector disruption brought on by the younger brands? So um, thanks thanks for having me. And it's great to be um, kind of in the virtual room with another scientist. So I'm, I'm a chemist also. So it, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's nice to see an engineer and and in the room as well. So it's exciting. And women, um, you know, um, it's been <laughs> so, you know, yeah. it's, it's quite a challenge, actually, because, you know, there's a lot of niche brands that are taking a very important stance and have a lot to say. I think we just heard some very important information as well. And so for Avon, being a very big brand who's focused on who has been focused on innovation for very many years, it's really important that we pay close attention to what's going on out there and we react to it. Um, we're quite lucky in a way that our business model is direct sales. So we have a lot of conversations all the time with our representatives and our consumers. And um, we, we need to, you know, we, we need to listen to them and then once again, react to that. And the, the niche brands are playing such a big role here that what it's really done for us is really forced us to be much faster and more agile and as you can imagine, in a bigger um, in a bigger company, that's not so easy. But it has made us change the way we work, uh, so that we're bringing um, new innovative products to market even faster than we've ever done before, so that we can react to the market dynamics. Uh, so that's been a huge change for us. Um, you know, one of the things that we believe in is, you know, is really product performance. And with the agility and speed, we we will not lose that. You know that focused on product performance. So that's really, again, caused us to completely change the dynamic of the way we work. So um, we've made some incredible strides over the past year and really changed how we bring products to market in the speed, which is a big, which is a big task for a very large company. Excellent, Candice. Let's uh, let's bring you into this into this conversation. I, I want to get in, you know, dig in, into the into the trends of the report in, in a second. But I know one of the things that that you look at is trust around brands. So I suppose this is the first big question of the podcast. Do you think bigger brands are losing the trust of the consumer? And obviously, I'm going to let Lisa come back on on this in a second. As Possibly the con the consumer contingent in this conversation, um, being a makeup artist and working with brands, all different kinds of brands, and dealing one-on-one -on -one with people. I will have to say that certainly my clients and me as a makeup artist do not trust the bigger brands. Over the years, I've been working with a lot of small independent brands, and the reason being is that there's a lot more transparency. It's much easier. I think you've just mentioned um, very accurately, Lisa, that it's the, the flexibility and, and being able to maneuver very quickly. So if, for instance, there's an ingredient that might be a contentious ingredient because it's exotic or is actually causing damage, smaller brands have the ability to segue faster than I think big, big corporations. And Going back to trust, and, and tr trust is transparency for me, and I think it's defining what that transparency is, because transparency is becoming a huge conversation in this beauty world, but I don't think that there's a, a standardized version of what that really looks like yet. Yeah, I think uh, topics like this are, have so many more shades of gray than they do black and white, and 
one of the things that I'm incredibly passionate about in the industry is taking early nascent technologies and figuring out how to move the industry forward with them. One of the things that I, I have seen, and it comes as the double-edged sword of, of, of being an engineer and being a scientist, is that I see so much misinformation that's out there and so many brands that are being started uh, with really and truly the best intentions, but a lack of fundamental understanding for how complex some of these topics truly are. So uh, yes, I do think that there is an inherent skepticism with the big companies. The way that uh, we view uh, this as a topic or an issue is that so many of our consumers are struggling with their skin because they have been listening to what they have been marketed with, right? Use all of these products, use these multi-step routines, and you will get pristine, beautiful, skin. And so causation isn't correlation, but certainly consumers are taking a step back and saying, hey, I've been doing everything that you've told me. I've been doing everything my dermatologist has told me, and yet I continue to struggle with my skin. Why is that? So they're taking matters into their own hands and for better or for worse, seeking out alternatives and solutions, some of which may be healthier and work for them and some which may may not. So one, one issue that I, I, I want to kind of clarify a little bit more, when I, when I think about this as an issue, I, I think a lot about consumer and product safety. And what a lot of people don't know is that doing some very basic safety tests are extremely expensive, and many small brands cannot afford to do this. But the large brands can. And so there's this irony where, uh, however you want to view ingredients, uh, there is extensive manufacturing QA and QC testing that is done by larger companies and organizations because they can afford it that small companies simply can cannot. And so there's when we when we pinpoint what we mean by product safety, I think it's really important for us to be very specific about that. Um, so I'll just I'll just leave that there. In essence, summarizing it by saying that it's much more complicated than we're, we're led to believe. But we really want to make things black and white and kind of make the big guys seem bad and the small guys seem seem good. And there are really good small guys, um, but there also are good big guys as well. Lisa, yes, thank you, and I could not agree with you more. Um, you know. It's for, for Avon in particular, you know, remember that we are a very big brand, but we have a very unique way to market in that, you know, we have millions of representatives who are the face of Avon and are directly in contact with their customers. So this, this sense of trust and transparency has been innate in our roots. It's not new to us. Um, it's critically important um, that we are giving our representatives a product that she can trust and feel good about recommending to her mother or her sister. Um, it's, you know, that word of mouth recommendation is one of the single most important things. So it's critical that we have, we have always put out a product that, that she can trust. And when it comes to safety, you know, she's 100% right. That is it is expensive. It is so important, though. You know, it's paramount. The, the most important thing is bringing a safe and efficacious product to our representative and consumer. And the one thing about trust is also giving her a product that when she uses it, she's actually going to get the results that we're talking about. It doesn't make any sense for any of us to put products on the market that are overpromising or not giving giving the result that um, that she's expecting. Therefore, we do do a lot of testing when it comes to not just safety, but also performance to ensure that we've got the messaging right. We understand the performance and what she's going to see. Um, otherwise, she's just not going to come back and you completely lose her trust here. Just and, and, and it's an incredible loss to all of us. So um, it's very important, that trust and transparency. I think it's really interesting, Lisa, actually, because I think you were the original direct-to-consumer model. And I think now so many younger, more niche brands are understanding that really honest, close dialogue with the consumer is what, you, you know, you can't put a, any kind of uh, monetary value on it. It's huge. But I think the most exciting thing that I find at the moment, but the most challenging thing is, I'm not going to say how long ago, but many years ago when I came into this industry, um, into the brand industry, then actually there used to be brands in the middle and consumers would oscillate around them, really, really hoping they were going to be able to actually have this brand in their life. But now it's consumers that are banging the middle and brands are oscillating around them going, okay, they need to actually genuinely fight for a, a very a distinctive place in the consumer's lives because, you know, the, the consumers are more knowledgeable than ever. And I think they better now understand 
the impact that their choices have um, on the world uh, around them, in particular in beauty. And um, this conscious consumerism, um, uh, sort of they're attracted to brands that really play a much more decisive role in society. Um, so I think it's now brands are having to establish new market norms by offering products that are trustworthy, inclusive and clean in the minds of the consumers. Okay, well, let's get on to the trends in the report, the first of which is civic beauty. And the report states uh, sustainability is changing the sector in more ways than could have previously been imagined from packaging and ingredients used uh, to what the brands we buy stand for. And it goes on to say that consumers today want transparency on the ingredients going into the products they buy and whether or not they are harmful to either their bodies or to the environment. Uh, Candice, you've specialised in sustainability for quite some time. What impact is the civic beauty trend having on the industry? It's a hugely, hugely growing trend, uh, particularly the the clean beauty trend, which is a very contentious term. Um, I'm sure you picked that up a lot, Yasmina, with the what's clean, what's dirty, but I'll use it as an umbrella term. And then I believe inclusive beauty is one of the, the civic beauty categories, which I think is vital and fundamental. And certainly in my sector, in sustainable, conscious beauty, I think that's a nicer terminology. It, it's something that I would like to see grow more in my sector. So just for clarity, I, I only work with, in inverted commas, clean, sustainable, ethical brands um, in my practice as a makeup artist. So... There's definitely still room to be more inclusive, but I think it's worth bearing in mind that one product doesn't necessarily need to be inclusive, but it comes down to the brand messaging because often products can be designed for one thing. So it really falls back onto a brand to have that messaging very clear that they are thinking about as many sectors of society as possible. And I think it's really it's really hard for consumers. There's a lot out there that they need to know. So I think I love the, there's a really great um, retail mm -hmm. store called Credo, which actually goes out and finds and helps consumers navigate their way and find these really special brands. Because I think that because of the amount of um, historical confusion, I'm not going to say fibbing, um, about actually what's in and what's out. I think, you know, as much as the as we know the consumers are trying to be as informed as possible, I think they are looking for brands or even businesses like Credo to really, really help um, find the cleanest brands around the world and really start to find the non-toxic beauty products and house them in either a virtual or a real store to make it much easier for consumers. I, I agree. I, I love Credo. I visited when I was there in the States last year. Uh, what I've started doing with my personal practice, because I think that there's so many different threads and different conversations. So what I've, I've had a look at is the motivation behind why we choose products, just on a very personal level. So I've distinguished um, animal welfare, so whether that's vegan or cruelty-free, uh, for health impact. So for instance, if somebody has a compromised immune system or they have very sensitive skin, what they would be buying into would be slightly different to somebody who might be really concerned about the environment. Or if you are religious and your religion dictates what you can and can't put onto your body. Um, there's also, I've, I've also picked up on social inclusivity and social impact. And for me, that's how I look at stuff. So mine's always been from an environmental point of view, and that's where I make my decisions based on what products I'll choose to use and what products I won't. But I wonder if that's potentially, Lisa, thinking about Avon, that's a huge opportunity for the bigger brands to really get their message out and help educate consumers to know what to look for rather than sort of um, as opposed to thinking it's all I mean the, the fabulous niche brands are helping so much but I wonder if there is a place for the bigger brands to actually to play that role of, of guiding and, and 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 helping to for the consumers to find that what they need and that barometer of what's safe and what's not and what they are and aren't prepared to compromise on uh, that's yes. I think how I look at it what am I fundamentally not prepared to compromise on on my beauty products and are there certain things that you know if I had to pick one brand over another I am prepared to compromise on this I think that's always helped me. Well, Lisa, what, what is your thoughts there? You know, it's it's important that Avon, you know, obviously has heard this. And an, our answer is that uh, we just launched a new um, brand called Distillery. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with it, but um, it is a very new launch. It just launched in the UK. 
um, and it's launching in, in the rest of EMEA as well. Um, it's our eco-conscious vegan brand. Uh, so we honestly, you know, we know how important this is. And there's a very specific consumer out there that wants this. Uh, it's clean beauty. It's pure and potent. Uh, it's both skincare and we'll be launching color in 2020. But it was really important that Avon has an answer to this, this consumer. And it also, you know, builds off of the, that trust piece in our heritage. You know, we, we have been listening for a long time. And this is, it, it was really important that we have an answer to it, but we're very proud of it. And it's a very new, new launch for us. And again, we brought this to market in record time. Uh, this is where, you know, we, we see what's going on there and it's critical that, um, you know, we are able to bring to our consumer, this vegan eco-conscious line of, of beauty products that are, that are high performing and they're pure and potent as well. One of the things I, that keeps coming to mind actually MT is how you had framed up the concentric circles of who's who's in the middle. And certainly what I've experienced with the, the crazy concept that we have behind Mother Dirt, right? Live bacteria. What large conglomerate is ever going to launch that in uh, as a brand, right? So I, I wonder if now the industry has shifted in such a way where the large brands and the large brand houses and CPG companies no longer view these leapfrogs or quantum leaps of innovation and thinking as their responsibility. I think that because of the rapid growth in particular of indie brands, because of civic beauty, uh, they're looking at that to help them suss out what might be less risky for them to pursue or how they can create their own brand aligned version of that now that they see that consumers are interested in that. And with that, you know, I'm just going to end with this note that consumers should feel incredibly empowered. Consumers should continue to inform themselves. They should really feel empowered that they can change and shift the industry. And I know that it never feels like it is moving quickly enough. You know, the, the United States in, in particular with their lack of uh, cosmetic regulation since the 1930s. There's been nothing added despite this increasing body of knowledge, but consumers should still continue to feel like they're empowered to shift and create change. So maybe our expectation of the big companies is almost mis misplaced. Maybe there's something that's shifted. Uh, do we expect them to react faster? Do we expect them to take bigger risks? I expect them to create safe and effective products, but do I expect them to be innovative? innovative as, yeah. Right. And I, of course they're innovative in their own ways, but I mean like these fundamental shifts, you know, who, who was going to create a vegan line 15 years ago? You know, that was very few companies were doing that, but now with the demand from consumers that has started to shift. Well, it's funny you were saying about which of the big, huge corporations would think about anything about bacteria in your skin, but have you seen um, Dove's baby, the new product, and they're talking about microbiome. And so I think you are so, you know, being so pioneering, but they're not, you know, they're so going to latch on to incredible innovations and amazing brands like yourself and try and get a little bit of that vernacular in their, in their business. Um, an interesting one I thought was uh, thinking about big versus small is also like Shishedu buying Drunken Elephant. And I think that's a really nice alignment of two brands who actually have very, very similar ethics, but actually now, and they're not, you know, Drunken Elephant is going to stay as it is, um, but also Shishedu being able to use their global reach to get the brand out there further. And I thought that was a really quite a lovely story, a nice dovetail, small into large, rather than one being eaten by the other. <laughs> if, if I may step in on a consumer-facing conversation with that, and, and I see it a lot in chat rooms and conversations around this, um, going again, going back to trust, that when these small indie brands do get bought out, and of course we have to consider the sustainability of the, the business, which is everybody wants growth in business, but a lot of consumers lose trust in brands that are get bought out, particularly if you're looking at cruelty-free brands that are bought out by companies that are still selling in China. And obviously, China has now started to look at changing the law um, from 2020 about what they test on animals, but it, it's not a blanket ban. And so while I agree with you to, to some degree, certainly from a consumer stance, I think that 
a lot of people will no longer buy into drunk elephants. Really? It's interesting, isn't it? Because it didn't. I think Ben and Jerry's actually haven't lost anything of who they were since they were bought by Unilever. They've managed to retain their DNA. And I think we talk at Future Brand a lot about the um, like a Venn diagram. There's real successful brands are the ones who actually have a really aligned brand experience and purpose. And I think as long as you retain that sort of really, really strong, I was thinking of a Venn diagram in the bit in the middle, as long as, because consumers more than ever are seen that when they're not aligned. And actually that's when suddenly the, I think the trust drops. So I think it'll be interesting. I really, really hope people still continue to buy it and it doesn't lose any of its, um, its wow factor or, or honesty. I agree that, that it's important to still buy into these brands if you, again, if, they fit into your values and your compromise. So I, I would also like to see what happens with mm. that. Right, I'm going to step in on this because as, as <laughs> great as this conversation is, we're about 25 minutes in and we've only talked about one trend so far and we've got lots to get through. And the next one on my list is optimised individuality and personalisation. Now it could be argued there's a tension between being outward looking and wanting to take better care of the planet um, while also wanting to express individuality. We've kind of touched on this already, but beauty brands are increasingly encouraging consumers to accept their identity and be true to themselves. MT, can this be reconciled with more sustainable and outward looking values? I think so. I think it's what Jasmina said is about consumers want to feel informed and empowered. I think there's some really interesting, an opportunity for brands to really acknowledge the individuality of, of their consumers. And I think, well, you know, that's so necessary and essential and I think also I think it's okay if, imagine if sort of the it's it, just because we're talking about sustainability doesn't mean you still don't look great so I think the fact that if anything can be more personalized to make my hair not frizz rather than frizz in a certain uh, city in the world I think I'm so going to buy into that and I think for example there's a really lovely brand called Pros that we um, we uh, interview um, in the we mentioned in the report and also we have a great interview with them and, you know, that's all about sort of really looking at this advanced and personalised diagnostics, really looking at the consumer lifestyle and then really making these custom-made products that actually for the consumer, which actually what's great is that they are custom-made, so it means they're not overly uh, manufacturing uh, products that won't be um, that will just sit on the shelf it's very very focused but also there's a great uh, benefit to the consumer as well because they have something so perfect for them so I think it's obviously going to be at a cost but I think this alignment of sustainability so there's not product on the shelf but also something that's specifically for you is a fabulous um a fabulous product um i love that you've mentioned that mt because certainly in sustainability a lot of the conversation is around packaging and the life cycle assessment which is all vitally important but there's not enough conversation around beauty waste so what happens with once the product gets into the hand of the consumer so i think uh that individual thing where people are actually loving the product so much that they want to finish it before they buy something new and you're not sitting with all this potential dead stock of product is uh, truly sustainable. Okay, so if you want to hear something really <laughs> hilarious and creepy but really cool, uh, from the skin microbiome standpoint, there's, I think, so many amazing and exciting opportunities for what personalization might look like. So I'm going to give you this most absurd example, but it was an actual study that was done in Japan where they took uh, participants of this study, they sequenced their skin microbiome, they separated out this one strain of bacteria that's a very common commensal on uh, human skin called S. epidermidis. For each of those participants, they spun up more of this bacteria, so the specific type of bacteria that was found on each of their faces, and then put it into a cream and then had them apply it over the course of two weeks. And they studied any changes that occurred in their skin. And essentially what they found was that this type of bacteria ended up improving moisture barrier function when it was restored back to the skin in much higher uh, concentrations. This was a very controversial study, but I use that as this really interesting, thought-provoking showpiece of, is that maybe what personalization might look like in the future? Taking a certain type of bacteria that exists on our skin that we want to amplify because it has benefits and uh, spinning it up and then applying it in highly concentrated amounts to our skin that's kind of wild. Or maybe I have a twin and there's really fascinating research going on with this. Maybe I have a twin and for whatever reason, my twin doesn't have any body odor and doesn't need to use deodorant. And yet I need to use deodorant every single day. And I don't want to do that because I think that it's bad for me. Is there a way that I could figure out what odor, non-odor causing bacteria my twin has and figure out a way to do 
an armpit microbiome transplant. So these are all crazy, (laughs) crazy, crazy (laughs) ideas. But a lot of people have been talking about AI and sequencing and the effect of things like epigenetics on our skin and how we can create a personalized routine. Uh, It's looking more and more like the skin microbiome has quite a large impact on how our skin looks and feels and potentially functions. So using, I want to incorporate the skin microbiome as a tool for, for personalization for people as that well. That really is the ultimate in individuality, isn't, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, Lisa, any thoughts? Yeah, definitely. There's, there's uh, uh, you know, so much on this and it's been talked about for quite some time now. Uh, obviously, Avon's got a lot of pioneering research in this area, you know, where you get into the highly challenging uh, technical area of personalization and customization, but if I could just take it down maybe one notch, you know, obviously we do a lot of talking to our reps and consumers and, and we're having a lot of conversations with them about, you know, topics that maybe, you know, they're a little bit uncomfortable talking about, you know, that are addressing issues like, you know, menopause, say, for example, where, you know, it's kind of like that bad word. Nobody wants to talk about it. And, and those conversations are allowing us to bring products to market that are addressing her needs. And that's a kind of a different way to look at customization and personalization where you're, you know, it's not that product that, okay, you know, we, we, we obviously have this as well. We're, we're launching something in Turkey. She can go to a store, she can pick her shade, she can press her powder, she can put her name on her lipstick. You know, that's one, one sense of it. Then there's the high tech sense of it, which um, the team was talking a bit more about it as well. But there's that sense of personalization where you're bringing products to market that really matter to her and that she can relate to. And that's where she can relate to a brand and saying, you know, hey, how about that? You know, Avon is actually listening to me and they're not afraid to bring products to market that people don't necessarily want to talk about. Um, and that's kind of a different, uh, you know, cut at personalization and customization. And it's, it's important that we continue to do that to drive you know, to, to drive the consumer relevancy in the marketplace. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that. I think recently I was reading an article that was uh, talking about how even in the digital space, it's becoming harder and harder for direct consumer brands to win because the spaces are so crowded. But the spaces that are uh, proving to be successful for a few brands are the spaces that are not being uh, spoken to at all. So these types of more typically categorized, unfortunately, as taboo issues uh, that speak very directly to a problem uh, that consumers have, but they have not wanted, companies have not really served uh, in an innovative or an intimate or personalized mm-hmm. way. There was a fun, fabulous thing I was reading the other day that um, it was Herbal Essences incorporating raised line and dots on their structure. So visually impaired uh, consumers could actually navigate between shampoo and conditioner. I mean, it's great. Finding it, it bizarre that that's never happened before, but I think such a wonderful, I love the fact that it's actually a very mainstream brand who's taken this and actually just ran with it and realized it's so important. And I think it goes back again to this informed and empowered. And I think the empowerment is actually making you feel like you matter as well as you feel that you can go out and actually really um, be very forceful. I think it's really important that the individual, and I think that's what it is about optimized individuality, to be informed, but also to make them feel empowered, essential. Okay, um, a hallmark of the trend towards a more individual expression of beauty is also reflected in another trend in the report, mood beauty. And Future Brand asserts that brands are increasingly drawing from and promoting traditional Far East rituals and practices that stimulate and support emotional well-being. Candice, where do you think this focus on emotional well-being and even mental health is coming from? And is seeking inspiration from other cultures anything new? I think the, the certainly the well-being um, and mental health conversation is a vital one. You know, we've just, uh, Lisa very rightly pointed out that there's a lot of taboo subjects and uh, around beauty and mental health is certainly one of them. But it's so closely connected to well-being uh, Beauty has this amazing opportunity um, to really take a moment and be calm and be still and almost be a form of therapy for a lot of people, Uh, whether it's just looking at yourselves in the mirror, giving yourself a five-minute face massage. So it's an opportunity for people to reconnect. And a lot of that slow movement, that mindfulness, that consciousness does come from Eastern cultures. So I think certainly when we're looking at it as a trend, it's important for 
there to be an acknowledgement of where it comes from um, so it doesn't get misinterpreted as cultural appropriation. We've just seen I mean, the other side as well is that we're seeing a huge, huge rise of the CBD beauty products that really, you know, claim to uh, calm and, and soothe and, and de-stress as well as nourish. And what I like about that is the fact that they're already, they're, they're piggybacking on something and a ritual already. The consumers are already going to be applying this to their skin, but this additional ingredient is already going to really connect the inside to the outside. Lisa, what's, what's your thoughts on that? So my thoughts on this are, you know, this is really important to Avon. And, you know, Avon has always taken a very strong position um, is that, you know, there's beauty is tied to emotions. And it's not just about how you look, but it's about how you feel. And it's about positivity, not perfection. This is something that, um, you know, we've spent a lot of time thinking about and really trying to redefine what beauty means. And it has, you know, an evolving state. Uh, it's not about that pot body positivity. You know, Avon's never been about that. And I think that what it comes down to is that if you feel good and beautiful, your whole life changes. It has such a huge impact. Uh, it's not about, you know, looking like that perfect model, but it's about that evolving state of happiness. There's a new confidence. And that's something that we feel very strongly about. And I think you, you know, people that are familiar with Avon see all the incredible work that we do with women and, you know, really trying to change the dynamic of, you know, how she feels about herself. And it does go back to some of those tough conversations, you know, that, that we have with women and, um, you know, really kind of getting out there, ensuring that there's that emotional journey. And it's, it's, again, not just about how she looks, but how she feels. And we've done a lot of work in this area and feel very strongly about it because I think it is quite life-changing. Lisa, when I started my career as a makeup artist 20 years ago, I, I actually briefly sold Avon. And what you were saying is really something super important to me. And if I may just give you a, a personal anecdote. One of my very, very first makeup jobs, um, I had an opportunity to do makeup for some girls going to their leaving dance. And there was this group of like really cool girls. They were a bit of a clique. They, you know, they wanted something cool and trendy and hip or whatever it was back then. And this other girl who was really shy and quite insecure uh, said to me, I just, I just want to look beautiful. And it's a really difficult thing to say to somebody, I want to look beautiful, because you don't actually know what somebody else's opinion of beautiful is. And I landed up doing something on her that was quite intuitive, actually, as makeup. And she looked in the mirror and started crying. And I absolutely nearly broke down. And I said, well, what's wrong? And she said... I feel, I've never felt more beautiful. Exactly. And and I think that's going back to what you were saying. It's it's a feeling. It's it's something that you can't always define, but that's what has set me off on my career because it it, it really stuck with me. Yeah. It it is it is so important and it's about being perfectly me, right? You know, everybody defines beauty in a very different way. And if, you know, you know when you when you feel beautiful, your whole attitude changes. It's, there's so much positivity around you. You exude it. And it's, you know, everybody's unique and different and, and defines beauty in different ways, but it's about being perfectly me. And um, the impact it has shouldn't be minimized. It has, as you said, you know, it's heartwarming to hear that. And I'm sure it probably even meant more to you uh, than, than, than to her because it has such a positive impact on you as well. Okay, as well as looking um, to these more kind of traditional notions of beauty and well-being, the report also looks towards the future with the intuitive beauty trend, brands making uh, beauty more instinctive and seamless to simplify our busy, active lives. Uh, Jasmina, I'm going to come to you on this one with your MIT background. I know you've kind of touched on a bit of tech already, but there was mention in the report about smart products and AI helping beauty to become more intuitive than ever, saving time and making beauty rituals easier. Uh, yeah, the first thing that comes to mind for us uh, with the work that we do at Mother Dirt is that people are definitely picking up on the fact that 
all these products and all of this maintenance and these elaborate personal care routines just intuitively don't seem right anymore. I think that something is starting to turn there. So even though Mother Dirt may may be a seemingly crazy example of how you can change your routine. So our Hero product, for example, as people start using it, so you can use it head to, head to toe, people find that they can cut out other personal care products. And so there are lots of benefits that go along with this. First, they're doing it because their skin looks and feels better. Two, because they're exposing their body to fewer uh, bits of chemistry and chemicals in general on a, on a daily basis. Uh, one really specific example of this is deodorant. So about 60% of our users find that they can uh, cut out or cut down on deodorant. Um, but the thing that we hear from consumers, even though not all of them want to cut out products from their routine, because for some of them, it is a self-love, self-care ritual, which personal care is personal is how we, how we say it. And we never want to mandate that people should have a certain type of routine. But there is this theme that is emerging where how we have approached cleanliness, hygiene, and personal care with the heavy fragrances and the heavy lather and the constant stripping of the skin only to need to apply copious amounts of moisturizer to uh, undo what the soaps did in the shower. People are starting, this is where I think about intuitive uh, beauty and intuitive um, skincare. People are starting to think, hmm, this doesn't seem, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem like how we were meant to take care of our skin. I'm so excited about it. Finally, <laughs> just like the, we're going to get time back. I think that's what's great. I think, you know, we are so time poor, but I think also that it's, it's um, we are bombarded on a daily basis with so much information um, at every angle. So anything that makes it more simple for the consumers and then actually just better, I think is fabulous. I think there's some really interesting brands out there. Even sort of the... Um, the one which is uh, GHD, you know, I think they've, they've got a brush now that basically when you brush your hair, it straightens it. Now, whether or not we think we should be straightening our hair, it's the fact that it actually it's, it's realized it can use some technology to then take out a certain step in somebody's routine to make it easier for them. And I think this goes back to the empowering. They can then use that five or ten minutes in a different way. So... For me, going back to sort of conscious holistic beauty, I think that data is obviously super important and it's a really interesting space. But in this world of data, we have become so disconnected from people around us and disconnected from ourselves. And I think that beauty is one of the things that is super personal. So, I mean, I'm interested and I'm curious to see what comes. But for me, I like the, the relationship to being able to choose my product for myself. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's so much truth in that. And that's where those conversations become so important. But, you know, you can use data in, in different ways. You know, um, for example, um, one of the ways we've done it was um, to go out and really study millions of comments online in regards to mascaras to see what, you know, was frustrating women and, and, you know, what, what they were looking for in this particular area. Um, we did an algorithm and we launched a product called Lash Genius, um, which is basically a multi-benefit product, right? Because women are looking for more than one benefit. And sometimes these are difficult to deliver because you, you may not, satisfy the needs, you know, let's say, for example, it's volumizing, lengthening, darkening, you may do a little of this, a little of that, and a little of this. But we knew that in order to satisfy this woman, this woman who was looking for that, you needed to deliver, you know, the maximum benefit in all of those areas. And, you know, this was something we did by listening to comments online, and then developing against it and ensuring we deliver it. So I do think that you know, there's that personal connection, which is incredibly important, but there's other ways to look more broadly by using data. And we, we happen to use that technique for the launch of our Last Genius product, which worked very well. Okay, um, time to come on to the final trend in the report, medical grade beauty. Now, the report actually states that the world of beauty is shifting from the logic of a hygienist to that of a biologist, and uh, that bacteria is increasingly accepted having a positive impact on the skin microbiome, uh, meaning that purity and over-cleansing are becoming things of the past. Lucky that we've got Jasmina sat around <laughs> this uh, table on this one. Um, Jasmina, are we actually set to see more of this? And... Relating it back to the uh, intuitive beauty uh, trend, have we come full circle and are we set to see a reversal of hyper-cleansed notions of beauty of the past? 
So the words that I use are not a reversal, but a recalibration. And I believe that this industry will progress in what I refer to as a continuum, right? So this is just an evolution. This is the direction that things are going in. Um, the skin microbiome is going to be a critical part of personal care. Uh, why? Uh, because more and more research is showing how much it impacts our skin. Cosmetic chemistry has gotten us so far. It's one of the most rapidly evolving uh, and phenomenally sophisticated fields right now. Uh, but perhaps we've reached a, a limiting point with the existing cosmetic chemistry that we have. We have more products than ever today, uh, more solutions for all sorts of things today, and yet we have more skin issues uh, than we ever had before. And so I'm not saying we're going to abandon all of cosmetic chemistry, but we are going to be adding a new tier or a new layer into it, uh, which is incorporation of the skin microbiome. And to paint a very clear picture of it, what, what I envision that might look like is we are formulating products for uh, sophisticated textures, for certain ingredient profiles, so things that we want to include and things that we don't want to include for certain types of absorptions, textures, things along those lines, all of the things that cosmetic chemistry can deliver and understanding the impact that it has on the skin microbiome so that we are not constantly destabilizing uh, the skin's ecosystem and thereby causing potentially a very harmful cascade of, of events. Uh, so I do believe that uh, it's it's going to stay and that it's going to become an increasingly uh, big part of uh, consumer, consumer products. But I'm also very aware that we are in the early, early stages of what this looks like. There's a long way to go, both in the uh, research, uh, research and basic understanding side, uh, but also there is a lot that we need to do in order to figure out how to best incorporate that into, into our products. So it's coming, but I position it more as a recalibration, uh, and we also need to have patience uh, and be really clear about what the science says and does not yet say. Uh, Jasmina, this, this is a, an area that I find very fascinating, but from a very naive point of view, because I'm not uh, a scientist. Uh, but I was reading a little while ago about the the Human Biome Project, I think it's called. And there was some, again, terrible statistics, but our bodies have are made up of more microbiomes than they are of our own human cells. Yes, 10 to 1. It's so fascinating. So fascinating. So, I, I mean, the question that I'll pose is, should we instead be formulating products for our microbiomes instead of for the human cells? In the case of the skin, should we be formulating products for our skin microbiome instead of our epidermal epidermal cells? Well, uh, Lisa. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think one of the things in regards to this, you know, this deep medical care beauty, you know, Avon's, you know, been a leader in skincare with our new brand for many, many years. We were the first ones to bring, we you know, we coined the anti-aging market. Um, we were the first ones to bring, you know, alpha hydroxy acids to market. Um, I think it's important to note that, you know, we, we, we need to continue to watch um, what's going on. You know, obviously we do in, in, in the medical field, you know, uh, across um, multiple different fields and in particular in skincare, um, really rooting um, and tying these strong, consumer insights to strong technologies that are going to deliver the benefit, which really talks to, you know, a very strong reason to believe for the consumer. For example, we, we have very strong rooted science um, that we marry with very strong consumer insights. And, that, and that's really kind of the winning combination in my mind. Um, obviously, following the medical field, following the dermatological field, but also following, you know, what consumers' belief are, beliefs are. For example, the the thought, you know, that consumers believe their products stop working after a period of time, and they, in particularly, felt their skincare stopped working. And we did some digging on this and wanted to see if scientifically that made a lot of sense. Um, we did, and it did make sense. And then we actually found uh, and developed a technology to address that, and it was based off of the science of interval training. The product is called Infinite Effects, uh, Reverseless Infinite Effects. And basically what happens is, is you alternate different products. You know, one week you use one product, a second week you use a second product and you, you go back and forth rotating it. So the point I'm trying to make is, is that it's important that you continue to, you know, dive deep into what's going on outside of your industry to enable you to drive the technology across 
both color and skincare to get to that next level of performance. So I, I think that's it's real important. You know, and, and Avon has been very, very pioneering, uh, obviously, um, across the years in this area. And we continue to be. Um, and that's the, the point I want to make because we're continuing to, to, you know, investigate, follow, you know, different researches in different areas. One of the interesting things that I'm noticing is happening for us right now and ties back directly to the conversation we had earlier, which is around clarity and transparency, uh, revolves around this word probiotic. And uh, we have a live culture of bacteria. The way that the World Health Organization defines a probiotic is that it is a living microorganism that provides some sort of a benefit to its host. And so we fulfill that definition. And yet there's so many skincare brands out there that have some ingredient that is in some way associated with a bacteria, but it's not alive. And so when you look at the history of how this happened, a lot of it has to do with how essentially many trends in food end up finding their way into skincare products. And this is very common and very normal, except for when probiotics became very popular in skin, in food, I should say, uh, the food industry already had a very well-established distribution network. They had refrigerated trucks. They had grocery stores with refrigerators. Their food didn't require preservatives. But with the personal care and skincare industry, that was fundamentally different. These things are not being shipped in refrigerated trucks. They're not being put on a shelf in a refrigerated uh, section. And so the skincare industry needed to reinterpret what this word meant. And so instead, they've taken byproducts of bacteria or chopped up little bits of bacteria and they've sprinkled them into product and they've called it probiotics. And so now what do we do as a brand? Do we hold on to that word probiotic when there are so many others who are using this word but essentially are diluting the meaning of it? And there's a lot of this happening with organic is a great example, right? And so candies, you're probably really familiar with this. And one of the things that I see at conferences that are skin microbiome oriented, many of the brands are concerned about this because when you dilute, when everyone has a different definition around a certain word, it essentially means very little to consumers and you contribute to uh, a lot of noise. And so that's one of the areas that are, that is going to be really important for us to continue to, uh, to navigate here. Does that make your sort of like development, your marketing even more challenging? Because you're having to educate consumers, aren't you? about what it is that you're providing? In some ways it makes it harder and in other ways it makes it easier. Um, so the ways that it makes it harder is that there's a ton of noise that's out there. And so for we very well could be diluting the true differentiation of our technology by only using the word probiotic. But it also makes it easier because other brands are talking about it. So it doesn't seem like we're the only ones beating this type of a drum. Uh, and from a very practical standpoint, right, for us to get out there as a brand, we need beauty editors to write about us. And the reality of how beauty editors work is sometimes they just want 10 probiotic brands and that is all they care about. And so for us even to get included in those roundups, it helps push the field forward because it makes it sound like there is more that is going on in the space. But at the same time, we still do get worried. And so we hope that when a consumer lands on our site, that we can do more of the heavy lifting with the education, even if it is just like the first touch point is using that word just to lower barriers of concern or to create a sense of familiarity. Yeah, I think if I could just build on that, I mean, those points were, were great. And I think that it's really important to two things. One is the simple messaging. Um, you know, it's great to be able to build off of something that consumer is familiar with, but then you do it in the way that makes sense for your brand and your product, ensuring that she understands it and she's going to believe in it. That's one. Two is, you know, that, you know, when, when everything sounds the same out there, but your product really does perform, that's another, th another thing you need to be careful about and separate. Because, you know, if, if there's a lot of products that are saying the same thing, yours is similar, but, you know, maybe your performance is set apart from the rest of what's out there, um, it's important that you're able to communicate that so she's going to believe and bring credibility to the product that you're putting out on the market. So there's a lot of challenges in that area when everybody's kind of saying the same thing, but yours is really a, a step apart. It's, it's making sure that messaging is clear. And again, the brand credibility or the credibility and performance when she gets it is what's going to help her come back um, and believe that your product is different. 
I, I also just wanted to uh, pick back up on your point, Jasmina, about the dilution of um, terms, because, you know, we're talking about sustainability beauty a lot, and that is a definition that's getting diluted, diluted very quickly, because there is no sort of legal definition to what it is, or, or common definition. I just thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had a really interesting experience recently. Uh, we launched a new product in a 100% PCR package. And so we're, like so many brands, trying to minimize the amount of virgin plastic that, that we're using. Uh, and when we went to register in the EU, our registration partner actually asked so many remarkably specific questions that uh, even as someone that is technically minded and experienced in the industry like myself, did not anticipate the types of questions that they were going to ask. And the learning from this uh, was that you need to be careful of the source of your post-consumer uh, recycled uh, plastic because if sources are mixed, there can be a ton of toxins that are in there actually making this very harmful for consumers if product is in there, particularly if it's oils or something like that that can leach whatever is in the resin. And so uh, what our, our partner had basically taken us through was that you want a single source and you want that single source to be very pure. And so the product that we ended up launching is in 100% PCR and it's single source from milk cartons essentially. But I never would have you know, you can blindly say, okay, I just don't want any virgin plastic. I want 100% PCR if that's the best that I can get. And then all of a sudden you learn about how actually it could be more harmful for consumers than uh, just uh, just going with virgin plastic, even though virgin plastic is terrible for the environment. And so being aware of all of those nuances and having good partners to take you through all of that is so important for brands who are interested in, in this as a space. And, and beauty supply chains are notoriously opaque and long <laughs> and I think but isn't with Google you know consumers are informing themselves about ingredients and sourcing so much that I think they just want to know they want the transparency so and then at least you have the reason for using the single-use plastic and there's, a, there's the reason behind it I think it is just making sure there's a clear dialogue I've done I've done quite a bit of research from my personal standpoint on packaging and I think the general consumer is still so focused on plastic and of course plastic is a massive problem but actually much like when I was talking about as consumers choosing their products based on their values and compromise for every brand that life cycle is different one brand mm -hmm. might put it in plastic because actually they've looked at the entire life cycle and the, the carbon footprint of that cycle is smaller if they put it into a virgin plastic from a single use source and it's fully recyclable than if they put it into fancy glass packaging and I think I don't think consumers really have that understanding yet about that bigger conversation around And I think it's the brands who have to educate. It's up to the brands. We can't expect consumers to be able to understand and navigate so much information, which is why it's got to be sung from the, the highest mountain from the for the brand's sake, because I think then at least they are owning the conversation. I, I have a stunning statistic to throw out there. So Unilever was doing, uh, actually, you've probably read much of the sustainability objectives that Unilever is starting to get very public about. Uh, the statistic that they put out there is that they believe and approximate that 70% of their global greenhouse uh, gas footprint can be driven by consumers in what products they choose from Unilever, how they use them, and how they treat them after use. Mm. And so a lot of people think, hey, it's just on the big brands for them to completely change everything that they're using with. And they forget, again, going back to that theme of power of consumers, of fully understanding the nuance and the decisions that they have to basically push this in the, in the right direction. Well, I'm glad we got back to the conversation about um, sourcing, environmental and sustainability, because I mentioned in my intro that, uh, Candice, you are judging the Sustainable Lifestyle Awards, and I promised um, that uh, you would get a chance to talk about that. And actually, MT, I think you're also judging those as well. So, um, Candice, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, those awards? A slight, slight, slight sidetrack from, uh, from the conversation, but all, all kind of linked. So um, the Sustainable Lifestyle Awards, or the SLAs, uh, are the very first of its kind uh, here in the UK. And they wanted to verify and celebrate brands and services that were talking about style and sustainability. And the mission from the start has really been to make sustainable living accessible, inspirational and educational. So in their approval or 
nomination of brands. They were trying to um, make sure that there was complete transparency from qualifying brands and eliminate greenwashing, which is obviously so rife in the industries. So I'm really excited to be involved, as I'm, I think you are too, MT. Yeah, very. The um, nominees were announced at the beginning of October. And so now we're going into the judging rounds. And where can uh, listeners go for more information on that? Sustainable Lifestyle Awards. Excellent. Well, I promised that I'd I'd allow you a plug on that. So thank you for doing that. Um, Now, we probably need to start to wrap this conversation up. I'm keen to get some final thoughts uh, from each of you on this whole topic, summarising where you think we are now and taking account of um, what we've discussed. Um, Also, what do you personally think the future will hold over the next five to ten years? Lisa, let's, let's come to you first on that one. Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, the consumer is getting just smarter and smarter. Um, There's so much information out there. Um, There's so much information she has to kind of mire through. There's so many brands, you know, having a very important point of view. But I think what it's going to come down to is that she has high expectations and, you know, she's, she's going to want products that are delivering on those expectations. And there's expectations in multiple fronts. You know, one is performance, which obviously I'm very focused on being in research and development. Um, it's a critical part, you know, of, of how the industry is going to, you know, continue to grow where, you know, products are going to, you know, have higher and higher performance um, criteria against them. I think that's one very important area that we need to continue to drive. I think that, on the other hand, she's going to have um, high expectations on what the brand stands for. And um, that's another area where I think it, we're going to continue to see huge changes in the industry. Um, you know, we have millennial Gen Z generation that are coming up uh, where they're, they're looking for very different things. It's not your, you know, your mother's makeup anymore. And um, we're going to need to change with the, with the times and continue to morph and make sure that, you know, we have those consumers uh, top of mind. But I think that the demands are going to be different on not just product and performance, but on brands uh, and what they stand for. And you see that happening now, but it's only going to continue to um, to grow. Jasmina. Uh, there was, uh, I'm going to start off with a pessimistic note, which is not at all uh, what my state of mind is on on this topic. I'm a, I'm a total Pollyanna, but I, there was this uh, phenomenal article that I can uh, send you that I found really interesting done by the Harvard Business Review on uh the purchasing and action gap on sustainability with consumers. So something like 67 or so percent of consumers say that they it is important to them to buy from brands that have some sort of a sustainability objective, and yet only 26% of them actually do and follow through with their wallets. Uh, and that gap is is frustrating. It doesn't really make sense, but therein is the excitement, right? So here's my, my optimism. I think that brands are going to get more and more sophisticated with how they communicate with consumers around this. There's going to be more and more alignment and synergy around what we mean when we say these things like better for you uh, or non-toxic or sustainable or better for the environment. And this is all going to start to close this gap. Uh, So I think that those are a couple of the key things that will happen there. And, you know, my my absolute inspiration from the industry still remains. I think that this industry is one of the fastest moving industries, even though I know it doesn't feel like that for some people. But uh, the beauty and the cosmetics industry really is among the first and most rapid to adopt new technologies. Uh, and I think for that reason, it stands to be one of the most successful in adopting some of these vehicles for change uh, that will come in the form of, uh, of new innovation. That's great. Well, we'll we'll put a link to the on in our show notes to that article in the Harvard Business Review. Um, Candice. So, picking up on what you've just said, Jasmina, I think uh, even having a look around websites today, you mentioned consumers are not, or, or the Harvard Business Review mentioned that consumers are not really putting their money where their mouth is on that claims, but. I don't feel that enough brands are putting sustainability front and center on their websites. Going to a lot of uh, cosmetic brands. I couldn't find a sustainability tab linked to their page, what their messaging was. So there's a lot of space for brands to really step up there. And that will sort of help build trust. And then the other thing I want to say is, you know, we we are facing a massive climate emergency and 
ecological collapse and species extinction and we're having a conversation around beauty which is lovely and fluffy and there's still businesses that are trying to grow but I think certainly as consumers and as brands we need to acknowledge this and start addressing it so how many lipsticks does one woman or man or anyone who wants to wear lipstick really need we have to slow down on our consumption of stuff so I think it's a it's an opportunity for brands to really think about different revenue streams within the sector I think that's consistent across a number of different industries though as well isn't it like fashion and food yeah yeah yeah. uh I'm going to start with a quote actually which is a a Dieter Ram's quote which is only well executed objects can be beautiful it's a very very old quote but I think the the beauty industry will be judged by how useful how sustainable how thoughtful how responsible the products it produces are and they may completely revolutionize our definitions of beauty today in a good way so I think we're going to go from frivolous to well executed which is a huge shift um, especially in terms of design and branding excellent um just to finish off mt if listeners want to download a copy of the future of beauty report or find out any further information where's the best place for them to go please go to www.futurebrand.com very good (laughs) a fantastic discussion thank you to all four of my guests today so lisa gallo over in new york and here in london mt casti candice joni and jasmina aganovich um we'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic so if you'd like to contribute to the discussion you can do that on our facebook linkedin instagram or twitter feeds and uh, those are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app and if you've liked what you've heard then please do give us a positive rating and review uh, finally if you'd like to get in touch with this show you can do that via our contact form at csuitepodcast.com or you can reach me via twitter using at ross goldsmith but for now thanks for listening and goodbye <laughs>